Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with our guest live from a wedding, in the middle of a <laughs> wedding, Beth Polka Agarwal, who is the co-founder and CEO of Chameleon. Today, we're going to be talking about onboarding flows and how to design really good ones using user research to do so. So thank you so much for being our guest today. Really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We've got JH here, too. Yeah, appreciate you joining us. I'm excited to learn about onboarding, get onboarded to onboarding, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're so happy to have you here live from, from your wedding again. And uh, we're going to be talking about user onboarding, and which I know JH is excited about. We've been thinking about, we're always thinking about onboarding. We have an app, so we want to make the onboarding experience <laughs> good. So maybe we can learn a thing or two from you today. But let's jump right in. When you talk about onboarding, maybe it's obvious, but what are we talking about? What is onboarding in an app? What's that? When does it end? When does it start? What is it? Yeah, good question. It's actually probably less obvious than it maybe seems. So typically, most people consider onboarding as post sign up until activation. So it's really the user's first experience with the product. And it typically goes to whatever you define as the activation point or activation metric. And that metric is something that typically helps determine you know, someone finding first value or you know, achieving the first objective in the product and then they can explore further. But I think there's a little bit more nuance to it. One is that the onboarding, I think, really begins from the first impressions somebody has of your product. Now, those impressions might be pre-sign up. So when they're visiting your website, or when, for example, they come in through an ad, they have a different context and understanding of your product than somebody who maybe comes through word of mouth. So that is important and necessary context as you then treat that user post sign up because they may have different expectations, different intentions. So whether or not the pre-sign-up part of it is technically onboarding or not, it definitely has an impact on onboarding and should be considered. Also, I'd say the other end of it, it's a bit of a gray area because a user is likely to have many what we call aha moments, points where they you know, realize value, something kind of suddenly makes sense. It's like, oh, I get what this is about. And so they're likely to have many of these in their journey. And so you might have some smaller act, you know, moments of activation or delight that help propel a user to the next stage. And even if they've done their first major activation moment, they may still have other features to discover and learn about that might be either more relevant for them or might cause stickiness. So we like to think of it as like, it's really the first time someone gets value from a part of a product. Now that could be just the overall product, but it could be on a feature level and actually, you know, you should be thinking about user onboarding for each feature. Let's say you deploy a new brand new feature, there should be a consideration of what, how are we going to onboard people to this new feature? Or you make a UX change, how are we going to onboard people to that? So I think it does extend and I think some of the principles around user onboarding are very, very effective for a bunch of conversion funnels in the product or, you know, loops in the product, however you think about them. So as I was just saying, you know, with onboarding, as you're describing it, there's potentially a lot of trade-offs when you think about everyone wants to kind of avoid friction, but some friction is good, some is necessary. We need to create friction so we can, you know, authenticate you, so we can segment you and send you on the right journey in your onboarding to understand what your job is to be done. And so I'm curious how you think about measuring some of those trade-offs if you want to do, say, some A-B testing or usability testing of your various onboarding. Yeah, good question. So in the end, it's going to be about what's the driver for the value for the business. So let's say you're 
driver for value is that someone makes a purchase decision or is, joins a subscription or it's like how much content they consume, et cetera. So based on how, like, you know, you really need to work backwards from that, which is, okay, well, this is, we want to drive like long-term success. Presumably it's like retention or it's some engagement metric. And so we will want to see, you know, through the different onboarding flows, what helps people get to ideally the leading indicators for those things. So obviously, like, let's say, we want people to make these take these key actions. People take these key actions. We know they're they're going to be they're going to stick around, or, or it correlates or causes people to stick around if they take these key actions. So during the early parts of the product experience, we want them to take those key actions. And so when we A/B test with friction, you know, more friction or less friction, we can ideally test for conversion to those key actions. Now, I think if you're begin if you're starting out and you're like, okay, I've got this one flow, should I add more friction or should I reduce friction? So if you're trying to think about that, the goal really is, are you finding enough people that are, if you're not finding enough people that are getting to that action, you can reduce the friction. It's probably a good place to start. It's like, okay, let's reduce the friction to get more people in. If you're finding that people are getting pretty far into your product, but are not sticking around, and you find that they're not high quality users, or it's the wrong type of user that isn't driving value, that's when you might want to think about adding more friction. Because what you're trying to do is increase quality versus quantity. So normally, I think most teams aren't at the point where they're having that problem. If you're super early stage, you probably have a lot of friction. And so it's fine because it's like, okay, let's do concierge onboarding because what we want to do is find the high quality. We want to find product market fit for a very small niche group of people. And then, but as you're, you know, mid-market or as you're scaling, then most of the problem shifts to, okay, well, how do we, you know, drive more quantity because we've already identified like the right group of people. That makes sense. The Something you said in there, I'm curious, if, if the team's like, all right, let's start optimizing our onboarding. Where do they actually start? Is the first thing, you know, doing some discovery or research around what are the critical actions to get people to first? Or is it we kind of think we know those, it's okay to have some hypotheses and some guesses there. Let's figure out with some, you know, some different ways of getting them to those things. Like, where do you recommend teams start? Yeah, good question. Yeah, there's lots of places that can begin. So I think a couple of things to think about. One is I, if we think about the funnel from the start of the product to the end of the product or the start of the user journey to the end of the user journey, I would recommend you start towards the end. You've already got people as far along as they were going and you want to get them further along. So if, for example, people are activating, but you know not buying, then I'd worry about that. If you think that people are buying, then you'd worry about activation. If they're if they're you know activating, then you'd worry about like you know sign up or so. I would work backwards um, rather than forwards. When you've got a place in the funnel that you think I want to fix, it's like okay, well you know let's because we're talking about onboarding, activation is a problem. So we want to improve activation. Again, apply the same principles. Where in the activation journey are people falling down? So with that, you should ideally get to some very specific narrow flows in the product. Like people are really struggling to go from step one or step three to step four. And rather than generally being like, okay, we have an onboarding problem, the more you can narrow it down, the lower risk you have when you're finding solutions. Once you've got to the phase that you want to solve, then you want to hypothesize what is the friction? What's preventing them getting across this gap or this chasm or whatever it is. In that, you can go and do some user research or you can go and ask them or you can add hypothesis based on your intuition or what you've learned from your support or sales teams. And then once you have the, you know, a clear hypothesis of these are the friction points, then you have to come up with some potential solutions. Those are then ones you can test and validate. Now you can validate in many ways. Again, you can validate a prototype or you can A-B test and validate in real life or you can series test and you don't even have to A-B test if you don't have enough scale. So I think to recap, you know, find the place where you know, you're confident is the problem 
then try to understand what is the actual problem. Why are people failing? You know, maybe they're experiencing some friction. Maybe we haven't communicated the value up front and they're not motivated. So once you know or have a good sense of friction, then you apply potential solutions and then validate those solutions. Yeah. And um, Kurt, you talked a little bit about the segmentation of whether it's by right company type or user persona, job to be done, whatever it is. Do you recommend most companies sort of start with limited segmentation? Or how do they go about that process of, right, you imagine a classic funnel, whether it's the pirate metrics, whatever it is, of I'm going to sign up, I'm going to have an aha moment, I'm going to activate, I'm going to pay some money, I'm going to pay more money, and, and so on and so forth. And that's sort of flat and everyone has the same journey. And at some point you need to say those steps are actually a little bit different somewhere in there for different kinds of people. You know, I'm curious how you've worked either, you know, in your own companies or with other companies to kind of figure out what are those meaningful segments to think of onboarding differently across different kinds of people. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think most companies probably don't do a very good job of this, which is that they don't make difficult decisions about personas and who the personas are and what the people are doing. I've spoken to so many companies and they don't even necessarily know exactly what users are looking for when they first sign up or go in. And I think you'll find that most software teams will find that there's multiple use cases or people looking for different things. So I think it's very important to ask those questions in either the sign up flow or soon afterwards. And it can be, if you have no idea, you know, start with a free form question, you know, what are you looking to do? And hopefully you'll get some information that will help you be able to narrow down specific use cases. And you can then structure the, the, the round two of that question to be like, which of these four things do you care about the most? And then you've got structured data. Once you have structured data, then you can start to use that to show different segment and show different experiences. It can be different email campaigns, in-product campaigns. It could be different offerings around talking to sales or talking to CS or plans or whatever else. But there's a really good case study that Superhuman, the email client, wrote up. And they said that they had decent product market fit and they were confused. They're like, you know, some people seem to be strong advocates or user power users, but some people don't. So we've kind of got mixed product market fit. So what they did is they did this product market fit survey. It's a survey, I think, that Sean Ellis popularized. Very simple question. How disappointed would you be if this product went away? I'll give you three options. Not very, you know, somewhat very disappointed. And the idea is that if you have at least 40% of people saying very disappointed, then you have some level of product market fit. Anyway, Superhuman did this micro survey and they asked everyone about this question. But what the interesting thing was, they also had characteristics about each user attached to this survey. So they knew the role of each user when they're answering this question. And so when they did the analysis on this, they realized that actually founders and CEOs or executives had extremely strong product market fit, but some of the other job titles did not. And so then they oriented their product and their use cases, their messaging, their onboarding around that use case, which already had strong product market fit. They wanted to expand that. So I think companies, you know, with, with pretty low effort can start to explore, understand, like, what are my personas? And then once you have some of that structured data, you know, you can ask them the question or you can collect it at some point. Once you have that structured data, then you can do a lot of analysis based on that data. Like, okay, what is retention for this, you know, by role? Or what is retention by company size? And then you can start to understand what the different patterns are. And that will help you narrow and focus on where you need to optimize and where you need to focus. Nice. Another thing that you're saying, I'm imagining maybe people don't do enough of, you're kind of describing that with the segmentation, the personas, is it feels like a space where there's so much like written about onboarding and so much that's shared 
that people probably get pretty drawn to the solution side pretty quickly of like, oh, we should use this kind of like tooltip tour, or we should do this kind of wizard thing or whatever, right? And I'm just imagining that there's probably like a foundational step of research that's pretty important to go actually hear like, where are your current users hitting points of you know friction or, or getting stuck or losing motivation? We spoke to somebody recently who has a user base that's, you know, lower um, tech savviness. And they found that the two factor step was like really confusing to them. And like that felt like a kind of like, you know, a key onboarding insight. And I'm just wondering, like, how do people get the right balance here of like jumping into prototypes and like, you know, mimicking stuff they see in other apps or see case studies about versus like going to actually understand the core issues that are facing their users? Yeah, I could re- relate with the parcel uh, experience here, which is when uh, so Chameleon, my company, helps teams build tooltips, onboarding wizards, as you call them, guides, etc. And what we found was that a lot of people were building things that were not that good. <laughs> they just didn't look good. They didn't work well. Remember at some webinar we did, I asked the question, I said, just, you know, anecdotally, how many people dismiss the welcome tour on the first step? And an astounding 91% of people said they did. And I was like, wow, <laughs> well, all of you folks are interested in building these because you're, you're the audience, and yet you dismiss these. What's going on? And there's clearly yeah, a massive disconnect. And that disconnect is often people are building these, as you said, very solution-oriented, but also from their perspective. They're like, oh, hey, people aren't succeeding. We need to show them our product. We need to show them everything in our product. We need to show them, and they're just kind of throwing paint against the wall, guessing that, oh, something will stick. Like, oh, one of these things will be helpful. But actually, most people don't want to go into your product so that they can learn your product. That's not their goal. Their goal is to meet some need or, you know, to complete a job. So actually, you know, we as a company introduced microsurveys as a product line because we realized we needed to help our customers learn and research more than they were doing to help them build more effective onboarding experiences. And so with microsurveys, which is kind of sing- single step uh, questions in the, inside of the product, targeted at the right user, triggered at the right time in the right place based on what the user has or hasn't done, that is really important to know what to then build and coach and guide people on. Because that way you're not throwing paint against the wall, but you can really assess like people are are struggling at, because of this terminology or they're looking to do something. We didn't even realize that. Another way, of course, we encourage people to collect folks to do interviews with through that, you know, through that channel or do more user interviews to really understand what the problems are before they go and try to solve them. So yeah, very much aligned. If you if you feel like your onboarding isn't working or you've tried doing some onboarding and you kind of feel like it hasn't had the lift you expected, most likely you need to do a bit more research or a bit more kind of under, get, you know, digging into the user, you know, user user mindset to, to help you build the right one. Yeah. And to- just build off that quickly. Are there things for this type of research that are like particularly effective? I'd imagine right? Like seeing somebody go through onboarding the first time when they truly want to use the app, it seems like kind of maybe the gold standard. Talking to somebody right after they go through it maybe is pretty good too, or grabbing somebody who's maybe close enough to your target user and then like making them go through it, you know, in a more contrived exercise. Like what are the best ways to get like the right signal on where people get stuck on that? Because I just imagine if you talk to somebody you onboarded three weeks ago, they can't even really probably remember some of those things, right? Yeah. And you know what? Like generally we've become really good at shipping product quickly, but we haven't been that good at like being lean about research and, you know, continuous research, unfortunately, or continuous discovery, as Torres talks about, isn't become as commonplace as I think it should have. So I think catching people in the moment is really valuable. So if, you, if for example, they're trying to learn a new feature and they U-turn, they go back, or they rage click, or they do something else, or they're just like filling stuff out and they get to some kind of key moment, asking and prompting then to, for them to answer a simple question 
or book a call to do some feedback is valuable. So if you could, the more we can do it in the moment, the more effective it'll be. I think if it's restricted to simple, short, convenient, users are far more likely to engage. We, we've seen that on average across our microservice, you know, we, we see millions of end users a month. The average response rates are 50 to 60%, which is incredibly high compared to email surveys where you, know, you get a 2-3% click-through and then you get 40% conversion on that email survey. It's multi-question because people are like, you know, they're not in the context anymore. So I think the more you can do to gap, grab people in context, uh, and if you can sh- ask them a question that they can connect the dots and why you're asking that question, they're far more inclined to respond to you because they say, okay, well, I'm, I'm checking out the dashboard page and you're asking me a question about the dashboard. Okay, I can connect the dots. Like the stuff that I tell you might actually be helpful to me on the dashboard because you'll make an improvement here. So it's much more beneficial and the user can see the value there. So they're much more likely to respond. So yeah, the more we can do to catch people in the moment is definitely going to be better and, and you know more accurate. So I know you've worked with lots of companies who are focused on onboarding. And I'm curious if you could talk to us about either some specific companies or what companies have in common that are doing onboarding well. We've been talking about onboarding in sort of general in terms of what do you want your users to accomplish and how might you go about you know researching what that looks like. But what are some exemplary, if not this sort of, here's a tour of all the features in our product and you know check the boxes and experience all of them. If that's not a great way to do it, what does it look like to do it well? Yeah, good question. I think the, if we want to look at the folks that set the standards, we have to look at games. They are incredibly effective because they are super complex, lots of pathways, lots of new things to learn. And so they have to onboard. And I think this is not my, you know, I'm not the original person for this example, but, you know, Super Mario, everyone is pretty familiar with. And, you know, when you first start, you know, you have Mario on a kind of wall and the only way to go is right. And there's nothing else you can do. You go right. And then there's this brick that appears in the air. And you're like, what is this? What can I jump? And then you jump. And then can I go above it? And can I go below it? And so you kind of layer in the learning and you give people value. You like you, ju- you hit the brick and you get a coin. You're like, oh, cool. This is cool. I'll do this again. You know, there's this reward there. And it ties into the psychology, you know, Nirael's hooked model, which says like, you know, there needs to be a trigger and then there needs to be an action, and then there needs to be a reward, and then there needs to be work done. You know, you ask people to do work after you give them the reward, and that creates this like the habit loop. So I think let's you know if we, that can be a good example. Obviously, software, if we're thinking SaaS or others, is uh, maybe not you know easy to be completely par- uh, parallel to that. But if we think about good principles, it's start with very clear signposting and have people accomplish things and then reward them. And if you reward them and then ask them to do more work, then they'll likely do it. If we want to visualize this, I think some companies, I'll talk about ones that everyone can nod their head to. You know, Slack is a really good one. Slack does two things. Well, what is that Slack bot, which we can park because not every company has a Slack bot or a bot type of conversation feature. So let's ignore that part of it. But the rest of it is actually really good as well. So some components of the rest of it I'll talk about. One is that when you're first loading or when you're first cutting into it, it actually it actually defocuses a bunch of stuff. It doesn't show you everything at once. It takes you to one thing, like let's learn the one thing. So it's almost like hiding menus or hiding options. So you know, as companies think about empty states, Think about like, does everyone need to see everything, or can we just keep it the scope min, you know smaller so people know where to go? The other thing Slack does well is that when it does give its onboarding, it's not 
in, so intrusive that it, you have to choose, do I want to take this onboarding now or not? You can be like, I'll take it later, or it maybe ap appears as a banner at the bottom of the page. And it gives you a chance to opt in because when people are going and trying new products or features for the first time, there's excitement, there's motivation. They want to like learn and discover. And if you bat that away and say, actually, first read my manual, this 10-step tour before you get started, it's really demotivating and frankly, you know, sad. So, you know, don't always get in the way. Just let give people the chance to opt in if they need help. And often what people find is they want, they'll click around, then they're like, oh, actually, now I, need, I realize I need some help and I want to go look for it. So that's why. So don't be too intrusive. Give people the option to opt in and, and take it again later or come back to it. The other thing that Slack does really well is that its onboarding is very bright. It's like a, there's a bright blue banner, there's a bright green tooltip. And so what it does is it brings confidence and interest into those elements and components. Uh, too often I see really drab looking in-product experiences or really clunky JavaScript you know, tool tips that are white background or white app and people are missing them and the ho hover doesn't look good. And it's like, it kind of feels like it really, you've built this because you think you shouldn't be building this, you're embarrassed and defensive and it's come out as like a, not a very good user experience. Whereas if you look at the Slack example, it's like, hey, we're confident, you need to know something with this thing that we're going to show you is of value, we want to draw your attention to it, check it out, and then if you're not interested, that's okay. So I think if companies frame it as like, hey, the stuff we're going to show you is going to be super valuable, you're going to enjoy it and appreciate it, let us be confident about putting it in front of you, then I think it aligns you know, the user's expectations uh, much, much better. So th those are maybe three small things. I could go on and on about all the good practices, and if you want me to, I will, around user onboarding, but yeah, maybe something... I want to maybe we'll stir some other examples to mind uh, as we can kind of keep hearing your knowledge is we've kind of talked about this equation of, you know, the motivation needs to, you know, exceed the friction or <laughs> the challenges they face in the process. And I think my mind and I imagine others quickly goes to, well, what can we do to reduce friction? But are there things you can do on the other side to increase motivation, like get people more excited and then solve it that way? Uh, it's almost like I've seeded these questions. I love these questions. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. So I'll go back to there's a, a professor of persuasive technology called BJ Fogg at Stanford, and he talks about there's being two axes, axes, I guess. One is to drive action, to drive human act, you know, behavior change or just actions in people. The y-axis is, is motivation. The x-axis is ability. And when you have sufficient motivation and ability, then a trigger creates action. So you have to still have a trigger. So if we Think about that from the software perspective. What does motivation line up with? Well, it kind of lines up with value proposition. Are people clear? Or it could be motivation, but just, you know, are you explaining your value prop clearly enough? And then ability lines up closely to interface. Like how easy is it actually to, to do the thing you're trying to do? And then the, the triggers can be, you know, prompts that you do in product or out of product. So it's absolutely important to have to drive up motivation. And you shouldn't just rely on improving ability, improving UX, making things quote unquote, more intuitive, which is often something that I hear from people who, who, you know, maybe as a challenge to having any kind of onboarding, they're like, well, we just need to make the product more intuitive. But there's two challenges to that. One is that, well, you know, if they've experienced something that you're showing them before, then you can make it intuitive. But as soon as you're teaching something new, whether it's the new way of doing something, whether it's a new technology, a new term, there's going to be teaching involved. And if there's teaching involved, you can either have that teaching live ever present in your interface, or you can show it through a dynamic experience. You don't need to teach everything you know, forever. You can teach it once and people will learn. So I think there does need to be some you know, prompts and triggers. But yeah, motivation is really important to drive up. Many companies, I have a couple other points on this, which I'll, I'll, I'll cover. 
a lot of users end up not spending very much time on marketing websites. In, like back in the day, like 10 years ago, marketing websites was where you kind of conveyed the value of the product. And then you would either kind of request a demo or you'd sign up and then you'd kind of go into the product and then you were in the, I'm doing it now, I'm using the product. Over time, people have spent less time on marketing websites. It's gotten easier to sign up for products. Everything has an evaluation phase or a trial. And so people are landing in products without really grokking the value or knowing the, con you know, the full value proposition. So actually, teams should be doing a lot more quote-unquote marketing or product marketing in the first user experience to re-emphasize the value of the product or the use cases. Sometimes customers will ask me, hey, what kind of video should I show in, as a first experience? And, and I tell them, don't show a video of your product show a video of your CEO talking to the user about why you built the product in the first place. And that's, that's the kind of engagement that people want because they're still assessing, like, is this something of value? So yes, you know, flow your, all of the great content you've created on your website, you know, for your users who are prospects, well, there's still prospects in their first user experience often. So make sure, find ways of bringing that in. One way that we're doing that is, is empty states where every empty state has a, almost like a landing page component. So that when you go into a product, there is a call out with, you know, instead of the product UX, there's the, the call out with the value proposition with an, a descriptive graphic, a CTA. So that's one example of doing it. But yeah, I really highly recommend it. And one example of, of a company that actually, if you remember the old days of Snapchat, I don't know if you remember that, but it, it was a very difficult to use product. It was very confusing. There's so many, the navigation was like, I don't know where I'm going, but it got really strong adoption and because it had a really strong value proposition and people were very motivated to use it. So that's just an example of that you don't necessarily need to only optimize the UX or the ease of use. You, if you can establish motivation and value prop for users, they'll get really far and they'll figure the stuff out themselves. Yeah, that's it's really interesting, the, especially the, the sort of founder video and bringing the product marketing into the apps a little counterintuitive. So I think, that, I think that's really interesting. And as we were talking about the Mario Brothers example and the sort of how games have done such a great a great job of doing onboarding well, I immediately started to think about gamification of everything, right? It's like sort of tired in a way. It's like, oh, let's gamify this, you know, and not every user wants badges and rewards and app for doing whatever things they're doing. So I'm curious getting that tone right in terms of keeping your users motivated, I imagine that looks different depending on your user base, the kind of app you are, the kind of value you're providing, right? I'm imagining like an accounting app and you're just like throwing cartoons <laughs> and trophies and they're like, what the hell is this? So, you know, yeah, curious about how you match, how you implement these, you know, these triggers and these motivations to match with the user and the product. Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's like, you know, maybe a simple like heuristic for this is like, is it gimmicky or is it mm. true? Mm. Like, mm -hmm. is it truly helpful to somebody for, to know this or to think about it in this way? Or is it just a gimmick? And I think if you are truly aligned to, I'm going to provide value to the user and this is going to make it easier for them to succeed, then I think you'll have a different perspective than like, hey, I'm just trying to drive my metric up and I'll throw whatever I can to drive my metric up. So I think while like the you know gamification has probably been a reversal against gamification because we've you know over-indexed on it. I think if we think of the accounting app, you know something that could work is like a checklist of things that people need to complete, or a progress bar of like, hey, these are the stages of you know that you need to get through, and that could be called gamification, or it could be just a UX pattern that will help someone understand where they are in the journey and what else they need to do. So I think finding the right balance and tone absolutely necessary but yeah you know being true at heart like what am i trying to accomplish am i really trying to help this user you know get value out of my product or am i just kind of 
you know, doing it for eyeballs or something. What are things maybe that people aren't doing well when it comes to, you know, researching onboarding? So let's assume they're trying to do some amount of research and they are trying to catch people who either, you know, just onboarded or in those moments. But are people maybe not asking about things that they should be or, you know, are there certain techniques that they should be considering? Like from your experience, what maybe are people missing or not getting right um, in this area? I think one of the biggest things people aren't getting right is the continual research. Like they're not, they, they'll often be a big project to improve user onboarding. And that's the time where everyone will do a lot of research and go and speak to users and there'll be a lot of design iterations and then they'll build it and then they'll dust their hands and like, okay, we're done. Like, we're not going to touch this again for nine months because it's tiring. It's a big project and you've spent a lot of time and effort and it's hard to get users into a room and talk to them, et cetera. So what then happens is that you, you, you put a good foot forward from the design phase, but you know, you don't iterate on it quickly enough. And I think as we, you know, we're talking about people getting into products really easily and quickly, well, the product and first user experience need to iterate a bit like websites are iterated, which is like lots of conversion experiments all the time running and a lot of testing. And so that's what it should really look like. And a lot of that should be continual research over time. I think the other thing that can be easy to miss is that the context changes over time for even the same type of user. For Chameleon, when we first started working on Chameleon, we had to answer the question, why a tool for this? Why wouldn't I build it in-house? But the same kind of user persona now asks why comedian versus why something else. And it's, of course, we're going to use something. It's just which one. So that context has changed quite a bit. And so our positioning, our messaging, what we highlight in the product is very, very different. And so I think that's also important to realize is that that's why it's important to keep changing and adjusting your onboarding. Yeah, that's a great example. Maybe a different question um, that's in this spirit is just from stuff I've seen and, you know, read and kind of been privy to on Twitter and elsewhere, it's like, I feel like you see both like macro and micro examples of, of big onboarding changes or wins. And what I mean by that is like sometimes you'll see people talk about how they like really overhauled something. We took this dense form and made it multiple steps and that, you know, had this huge improvement in some outcome. Or you'll see people point to like really like seemingly kind of like nuanced minutia stuff of like, oh, we changed this copy here or we like repositioned this button and we saw a big shift. Like how do teams kind of think about like which of those areas to be like focused on? Do you just keep an eye out for both and you, you know, as you're continually researching chase down wins as you find them or should you start on one side and then kind of go to the other? Or does that kind of make sense? Like the big picture versus the details? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think firstly, it's like, you know, those are headlines and they're, you know, it's always sensationalists that get the headlines. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, most teams that are driving success are just chipping away at the problem, you know, rigorous experimentation, continual changes, continual improvements. I think it kind of depends where, what, you know, how much you've already done. You know, if you're at the point where like, well, we haven't touched our onboarding for like two years and it might be worth a little overhaul reset back to your baseline of what's good now, what the patterns that people are used to now. I mean, one example is, I don't know if you've seen this as well, but now when I sign up for products, I don't have to fill in a password at the beginning. Like I don't have to create a password. I just like put an email in and I'm in. And then I get a, a prompt later to create my password. So now when I get to a product and it's like, oh, set your password, I'm like, oh, this is weird. It's old. And it's like, so it's a, that's a pattern that's changed. My context has changed. Or, you know, so I think it's important if you haven't touched it for a while or you feel like maybe we're outdated, then yes, worth a big revamp and look for the big macro changes that people are doing or the new patterns that are being established. And then if you're like, hey, we've actually our onboarding is pretty good. We've been, we have a team that's continually working on it. Then, then I think you're looking for micro wins and say, okay, what can I do? That's like small tweaks. And maybe, or, yeah, I don't know. That's the best guess I have. Maybe it is worth doing an overhaul or, or step back, 
broadly. I think it's it's similar to the general question, you're, you know, how do you not get stuck at a local maxima where you're like continuing to iterate, but you're still in this like well, but next to you, there's like a, ma- a much bigger optima or whatever, you know, deeper well or bigger peak. And you just have, you're, you're not able to get out of it because you're kind of continuing to do this, this small changes. So yeah, I don't know if, <laughs> if you have any thoughts to be interested, but that, that's kind of, that's where I think about it so far. No, that makes sense. But just like kind of parting thoughts in terms of onboarding and research. What, what should people know? You know, as you said, I think a lot of people, big companies are different. They probably have, you know, onboarding teams that are exist in perpetuity and are constantly right testing on onboarding. But many companies, ours included, are not focused on onboarding sort of 24-7, 365. And so in addition to not just sort of working on onboarding, making it a project and then setting it and forgetting it, some other top tips or kind of takeaways in terms of making the most of your onboarding. Yeah. So I think ideally you have somebody who's accountable for onboarding. That would be a good start, even if they're not working on it the whole time. But it can be like, okay, if we need to make onboarding improvements, who do we go to or which team do we go to? Because that's the team that knows about this or thinks about it. That would be a good start. Ideally, that team thinks about growth and engagement or conversion across product funnels generally. So onboarding can be one of those funnels, but maybe there's a revenue funnel or sometimes there's a monetization team or maybe there's another funnel. So ideally, accountability will help. And second tip is to find a way to continually survey or research your users. Now, you can do that through a micro survey that you set live and maybe, you know, you get those responses in a feed that, you know, is visible to you. For example, we send responses to Slack and teams like then connect their Slack and then you've got people like passively hearing and learning about what users are thinking and why they're doing certain things. So finding a way just to continue to introduce that insight, you know, in a low effortful way would be good because then you'll continue to build your intuition. I think setting a, you know, instead of it being a every year, if you can maybe, if you're not able to do it regularly, but maybe every quarter that we're going to review our onboarding metrics or activation metrics, or actually we're going to put them on a dashboard and continue to monitor them. So bringing visibility to the things that you care about so that people, you know, it's, it's the same kind of principle. Passively making people aware of this will help drive more insight for when you do want to change it. So I think maybe those are three good ones. You know, having someone accountable, um, trying to, continually research and collect insights and then bringing those insights, whether it's dashboarding or the, the, the feedback to people's eyes regularly. And then you know, maybe number four is just try to find a regular slot to, to also maybe do a you know, review of your onboarding uh, would be maybe good, good tips for, for improving onboarding more effectively. Lots of good, useful stuff in here. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, pleasure. Good to chat about this stuff.